Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Welcome back, everyone. This is episode number seven. Today, we're going to be talking about alcohol and the epidemiology of alcohol use disorder, how we diagnose it, criteria for diagnosis, as well as some uh, comorbid other substances of abuse um, that make the alcohol use disorder a little bit more challenging to deal with. Amazing. So let's start it off with a little bit about alcohol use disorder and its epidemiology I think it's important to understand that, uh, you know, if you look at the U.S. population, that, a, that about 88% has had some alcohol during their lifetime. And really, when you look at that group between 21 and 25 uh, and their consumption, it's about 70% of that age group is actually consuming alcohol with some regularity. But this actually decreases with age. I think it's interesting to note, though, it doesn't decrease all that much, I guess, if you, you look at it, relatively speaking, because when you get to the 60 to 64-year-old age group, which, Kurt, you are almost leaping into or not, not even close. limping with your cane into, 50% of 60 to 64-year-olds are still consuming alcohol. This would potentially be called elder abuse, what you're doing here. <laughs> so really, if you look at the scope of this problem, I mean, basically about 100,000 people annually die from alcohol-related causes in the U.S. And I think often when we're talking about opioids, which is something we talk about a lot uh, in our real life, uh, really this still surpasses all of the opioid deaths. So alcohol is a big problem in the U.S., third leading cause of preventable death in the United States of America. Well, then if you look at just some of the morbidity associated and look at liver disease, cirrhosis, alcoholic cirrhosis, half of all U.S. liver disease is associated to alcohol misuse. I do have a question, though. Oh, gosh. Because I have kids that are not yet to the age of 21, you know, like your grandkids, um, how do you become a parent that has the kids in that 30 percentile age group or that 30th percent that didn't consume alcohol in that 21 to 25 how do I become that parent, Kurt? I wish I had that answer. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit more about the epidemiology. Um, and when we look at the prevalence of alcohol use disorder, if you look at lifetime prevalence, it's nearly 30%. And if we just break that down into a 12-month prevalence, looking pretty close to 14% of adults. So I think that the number really, it, it's right around 15 million adults that have an alcohol use disorder, which is, I think, really pretty... Uh, pretty stunning. When it's like the the data point we always talk about with with opioids, very similar for alcohol. That if you look at the the twenty percent of the drinking problem, twenty percent of the people who drink heavily are actually consuming eighty percent of all the alcohol sold in our country. I mean, to just think about that. Yeah, it's just stunning. It is, and actually, when you when you take this take this number that that actually nineteen point eight percent of respondents. Um, with a lifetime alcohol use disorder, actually get treatment. So there's a large portion of these people actually never get treatment or present and are, are sent to treatment. So it's really a, just a small percent, just a fifth, that actually do go through with treatment. When, when you look at other chronic diseases that we, you know, always talk about how, 
you know, use disorders and addiction is, is definitely a chronic disease. And we talked about that a few weeks back. Not everyone likes to think of it as a chronic disease, but when you look at alcohol and compare it to other more common chronic diseases, asthma, diabetes, depression, mental health things, the, the prevalence of alcohol use disorder in itself is, has a similar prevalence to those chronic diseases. And it's just stunning. And then when you throw in the, the prevalence associated with other um, use disorders and other um, comorbid mental health disorders, how high it is. They're, they're much more likely to have other substance use disorders. They're more likely to have major depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, antisocial personality disorder, borderline personality disorder. So these kind of things tend to go a little bit hand in hand. I think, you know, in previous podcasts, we've talked a little bit about the genetics and, and addiction. And obviously, uh, when we look at alcohol, much like the others, Roughly 50% of it, and you know, I think a lot of times in different studies, it's been right between 40 and 60%, so we'll use 50% as our number, is probably passed on from, from family member to next family member. Um, and, I, and really, it's interesting that when you look at the severity uh, of the alcohol abuse in a particular family, a lot of times it, it's actually very similar from generation to generation. So I think that uh, that's something that we always have to look at and and actually, if you look at both parents, if, for instance, both of your parents have an alcohol use disorder, you actually have a seven times higher chance of also having an alcohol use disorder. Well, and I think from a primary care perspective, um, you know, counseling all age groups and well-child checks and teen checks and young adult checks, really pointing that out and not necessarily to tell a patient, oh, my God, you're going to have an alcohol use disorder. But if they have it in their family, just to warn them. So they're just maybe a little bit more aware. Or when they go to college, they're just a little bit more cognizant of how much they're drinking and about that just because they are at increased risk. I think I was uh, actually pretty impressed by uh, a patient I just saw here in the last couple of months. And I I know that the father in the family has an alcohol use disorder and I've taken care of him for many, many years. And Uh, So I saw a son, his son, and uh, when I asked him uh, whether or not he had alcohol use disorder in his family, he actually said no. And uh, I then quizzed him about his own alcohol use, and when he confided in me that he was uh, on an average Friday night drinking a case of beer, which he thought was not excessive, uh, it's, it's really interesting even how in the family sometimes they don't recognize alcohol use disorder in themselves or their or their parents. So, Bottom line is just not be afraid to ask and to talk with patients about this. Yeah. It's funny because I had a talk with him about what at-risk drinking was. And when I explained to him that, what, that at, at-risk drinking would be maybe 15 to, you know, uh, 15 beers in a week, uh, and he was doing almost twice of that in one night, um, I think he was pretty surprised by that number. Uh, but then pointed out that that was actually alcohol that he was consuming over an eight-hour period of time and didn't feel that three alcoholic beverages an hour, an hour was excessive. So I think sometimes we have to put that in perspective for our patients. Well, and I think just since you jumped ahead to, to talking about that at-risk drinking, I think it's important to know this as well. You know, like you'd mentioned, 15 drinks in a week for a man or five in a t- at one particular time. But for females, it's only eight or more per week is already considered a little bit at risk um, with four as a max in one setting. And um, 
I think when you put it into perspective of what that actually looks like, you can look at all the different charts to say, you know, is it a light beer? It's 12 ounces. If it's a glass of wine and it's a shot, what that actually looks like and be able to explain that to patients, what's considered at risk. Yeah, and I think nowadays with the breweries, sometimes these alcoholic beverages, uh, some of these beers at 10 and 12 percent, uh, it sure changes the calculations. So, And I think, too, you have to look at this as well from ethnicity. And, and we often uh, look at some of the data and you look at the difference between different ethnic groups. And the African-American group, really, it's interesting that they start drinking typically later. And uh, they actually have less issues with alcohol abuse, uh, much different than uh, Hispanics who tend to have a very low prevalence compared to even uh, to most Caucasians. Uh, Asians overall have a much lower prevalence of alcohol use, uh, and of course Native Americans much higher. Uh, and so I think it's in, it's really important to understand as you see patients uh, some of the risks involved as well with ethnicity. And some of that ethnicity is is probably just you know availability and the the way that they grew up with what's acceptable versus what's not and. Um, not drinking in the home when you're younger versus drinking a lot when you're younger. And so there is the genetic variability in how you break down and metabolize um, different substances, but also just what a patient's environment they grew up in. Then when you look at just comparing men to women, historically men have always had a higher risk of alcohol use disorder. But, you know, as time has gone on, women um, are are starting to catch up to men, um, but they have that neat phenomenon called telescoping. Um, where they start later, but then they accelerate much, much faster. Yeah. So let's talk just a little bit about uh, how we approach these uh, in the clinic. And I think one of the things that people are pretty familiar with is the cage, <laughs> easier for me to say, the CAGE questionnaire. Uh, and CAGE actually uh, stands for Cut Down, Annoyed, Guilty, and Eye Opener. Not like annoyed with you? Well, that's only one of four, so it wouldn't count. Um, and again, when you th- when you get two of these or more, it's strongly associated with alcohol dependence. And frequently, when I see patients, I typically ask them about whether or not their um, whether their alcohol use has has caused problems in their marriage or their relationships. And that's usually how I get to the other things. I I probably don't start with, "Oh, do you drink in the morning?" Uh, right. I, I don't I don't go there right away. I think you've got to get that conversation going. And sometimes it's the legal issues, the DUI, the family issues, uh, sometimes that I'll start uh, to kind of warm into these other questions. And I think this is probably one of my favorite screening things in all of primary care, just because, you know, like you mentioned, you can just ask the casual question um, and it leads into the other ones without having a patient have to fill out a form, which most patients can get a form and know how to answer the questions correctly. Um, maybe not honestly, but correctly. So um, I just, this one's an easy one to just kind of throw in, you know, informally. Um, the audit C, though, you know, is probably a, a little bit better of a test overall as far as predicting is, it's not only predicting, but it also helps kind of guide as a provider what next steps you should take. Um, looking at, Primarily at um, how much a patient's drinking, like as far as how many days a week are they drinking, how much are they drinking um, at one giving setting, um, and then if they've had any um, major issues um, associated with this. And based on how they answer this, they get a score of zero to four. And depending on their score, do you just kind of say, oh, good work, keep going? Or do you to maybe have a little bit more of intense of a conversation? Or do you start really pursuing possibly an alcohol use diagnosis um, with treatment or recommendations for treatment? 
just kind of really separates people very quickly on a scale. Now, if all of you are sitting reading your DSM-5, which maybe you're not, they, of course, have the criteria now for alcohol use disorder, and there's actually 11 things on the list, uh, all printed very small in front of me. And I, <laughs> He's and a little elder. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I've got the good glasses on, but they still look little. Uh, but I think that, you know, some of the ones when I'm uh, talking to patients that I'll ask them most about are really withdrawal or shake, withdrawal or shaking, um, and and tolerance that you know how much do they need to drink before they really feel something or or do they ever or are they drinking as the day goes on, uh, and I think sometimes those legal issues. I I just saw I actually just saw a patient here just in the last ten days, and uh, he t- he surprised me by telling me that he had uh, stopped drinking and. He'd been a person that had hypertension. He had uh, some of the stigmata that made me think he was drinking a little too much. And as it turns out, every two days he was drinking a five-liter box of wine. Ah. And uh, and although I was trying to tease out of him whether or not he had withdrawal symptoms, in fact, he did not, which I was uh, really with that amount of alcohol, I would have assumed he withdrew. But you could be amazed sometimes about how much people can be drinking but yet not have withdrawal. And he had been without alcohol for almost a month. I always, you know, and this this is with that is kind of just if they're hiding their drinking or if they're doing things that they wouldn't necessarily um, tell everybody that they're doing with their alcohol. This is the same criteria as for all use disorders where it really becomes important to lay this out and to get an exact score is, you know, when you're coding, which of course everybody knows that documenting and charts and coding is where medicine is really all at. So that's really the utility of getting to the exact diagnosis, mild, moderate, or severe alcohol use disorder and pulling out the DSM-5 criteria. But sometimes just as a primary care doctor, you'll see a patient come in and you'll, you'll just notice little things or you'll, you're heal, you're, you will hear little things, like you said, the whole legal issues. And so patients start talking about DWIs or they're in a lot of violent situations or they're falling a lot or they're maybe confused or maybe have some stomach bleeding issues. These are kind of things that you'd kind of hint as like, what's the underlying cause here? Um, what's going on with this patient? And what is, are we moving to signs and symptoms? That was symptoms. Oh, so <laughs> let's talk about signs. And in, and interestingly, when, uh, you know, I think often when you just see people for, for annual exams, a lot of times these things are things that you'll notice. And again, I talked a little bit about the hypertension and uh uh, you know, sometimes that rhinophyma or some of the muscle wasting or uh, these some of these patients will come in and they'll have a mild ascites or different things that we can pick up on that can kind of push us into that next step where we start asking uh, more specific questions about their alcohol. Um, you know, and obviously this is a group that frequently also is smoking. And so there's a lot of things really to look at um, uh, with these patients. I like when you um, were talking to the students about this and you talked about the hypertension, you know, kind of a random hypertension out of nowhere. I always find it more of a diastolic hypertension as well. Um, Kind of just keep in the back of your mind if someone's got some unexplained hypertension that seems to have progressed or it just doesn't always necessarily make a bunch of sense to really kind of pursue and make sure you ask about those questions as far as, you know, smoking and alcohol use and yeah, and I think one of the signs that that actually didn't make our list, I I think you must have made this list and <laughs> forgot, um, is really sleep disturbance. And when you oh, look true. at this pa- the patient group uh, uh, from a distance, often these are patients that come in they're having difficulty sleeping. And although patients frequently are using alcohol, 
uh, in the evening to help them sleep. In fact, these patients tend to have more trouble sleeping. They have less REM sleep. Uh, they tend to have sleeping disorders. Often, this may be a group that are a little heavier. They may also have sleep apnea with some respiratory depression, also from the alcohol. So, yeah, right. I think if you want to really get complicated and confusing, you look at the the chart for how alcohol impacts your sleep, and it's just phenomenal how a little alcohol can do one thing and more alcohol can do another, and then alcohol use disorder does something completely differently. So I think sleep always just alerts you to lots of things. Yeah, often, like, what are they doing in the evening that could affect their sleep? So, Do you want to transition? Yes, the last topic we're going to talk about today, um, and then we'll go back to other alcohol topics, different uh, kinetics of alcohol and you know treatments of alcohol use disorder and for their upcoming talks. But other medication combinations or other uh, illicit substance or substance use in combination with alcohol can definitely be a big deal, Kurt. And that's kind of where we really entered the world of alcohol use disorder was first through our opioid use disorder work. Yeah. And so if you look at what happens when people are using both alcohol and opioids, often that you'll, they'll have kind of a slower uh, metabolism of these things and they'll have increased toxicity when mixed. And, and of course, we always think about the respiratory depression as kind of that bigger th- problem uh, when they're uh, potentially using prescription opioids but also drinking alcohol, substantial amount of alcohol in the evening. Uh, so I think that's something always to consider. And the fact that the eth- you know ethanol or alcohol uh, can modify some of the opioid receptors and also the effects of the opioids that and, that they have on those patients. And then, like always, you know, one substance use disorder makes you at more risk of another. But when you look at the actual statistics in there, patients with opioid use disorder do have a high propensity to also have alcohol use disorder. And I think if you are starting out and you're really looking at different substances of abuse, you have your uppers and you have your downers and all essence, like, those are the that's highly scientific. Highly scientific, but when you're first learning, I don't think it's a bad way of looking at it. And alcohol um, is a depressant or a downer, just like opioids are, and just like the other next drug we're going to talk about with benzos, um, also kind of being that downer. And so combining them together, just really when you're thinking of being down, depressed, the breathing issues and the respiratory depression really come into play. I'm going to back up for a second because actually uh, I saw a patient on telemed today during the middle of the coronavirus problem and. Um, also, we always have to think about the alcohol in people who have had opioid use disorder and now are on Suboxone. Very true. Uh, or, excuse me, buprenorphine. Uh, and I have this patient who, who that's still a real focus for mine because there is that increased risk with the, with the buprenorphine <clears throat> and, uh, and the alcohol. So even after they are in recovery and they're uh, on some form of MAT, uh, although uh, Vivitrol would not be one that would cause a problem, both methadone and, and the buprenorphine can be an issue. Perfect. Um, so transitioning back to benzos. Go uh, back. Go back. <laughs> when you're mixing benzodiazepines, um, whether it's with opioids, benzodiazepines, and alcohol, alcohol is involved in you know, up to a quarter of all of these um, intoxications that present to the emergency department. And again, benzodiazepines can cause that respiratory depression Um and the, if you just look at overdose deaths that have opioids or benzos, 20% will also have alcohol on board. I mean, that's one in five of those overdoses. And we always talk about you know, the opioid crisis and to think that alcohol is involved with that many. Um, and again, it's just that whole breathing, you know, decreased respiratory depression and all of that, especially in the elderly populations. Mm, that's where you're going to end that. Huh? I am going to end there. Why let's, don't you go to an upper? Let's talk about cocaine. <laughs> Eric Clapton. 
Um, and so one of the interesting things about uh, cocaine and alcohol is they're frequently used together. And part of the reason they are, I think a lot of people who are using these particular substances don't know the chemistry behind it, but the reality is they know the effect. And anytime that you're using cocaine and you're also using alcohol, you form cocaethylene, which is actually a metabolite, which actually extends basically how you feel when you're using cocaine. So it extends it extends that whole cocaine effect. And so often people, and we've certainly seen this in our practice, people will use those things simultaneously uh, due to that longer half-life of the cocaine effect uh, with alcohol. It was interesting. One of my uh, buprenorphine patients the other day was was so proud of himself because, you know, he, he has, he does have a side alcohol issue and he's working on that. And so he was so excited to tell me that he didn't drink as much when he went to the bar, but he did mention that he went out and did a line of Coke while he was at the bar and um, thought that was better because, you know, he said, everybody knows that alcohol is a downer like opioids. So I did an upper. I said, well, when you, when you look at that together, it's actually has much more risk and, um, he didn't dislike his effects, but I guess he didn't realize, obviously, the negative impact it can have, especially with cocaine. Yeah. And we'll move on to smoking. So smoking, of course, one of the most common uh, use disorders uh, in the world. Uh, actually has kind of these synergistic effects with uh, uh, adverse effects, especially, you know, certain cancers. And when you look at some of the mouth and throat cancers and the use of alcohol and smoking, uh, certainly there's some data there uh, that shows that those things have a link. And of course, smoking is nice because sometimes when people are, are drinking alcohol, if they smoke, it actually uh, will improve their cognitive functioning. Uh, again, I've always loved the whole thing with uh, smoking, how when you're tired and you smoke, it kind of wakes you up. And if you're really anxious, you smoke and it kind of calms you down. It's this unusual thing that uh, smoking tobacco can do for people. But every good country music listener knows you only smoke when you drink. And and frankly, I've had a lot of patients that said that have told me that the best thing in the world is a cigarette and alcohol together. So really, um, attacking both of those problems, I think simultaneously is is always a good thing. Just because they're both legal does not make them okay. So. I think, is that it for today? That is where we are going to end today, and we'll get to the more nitty-gritty metabolism and kinetics of alcohol um, in the next couple of weeks. But we would like to leave you with... We're going to leave you with our in-house band playing a... Well, we asked the Rolling Stones to be on and play some songs, but instead our in-house band, Battle Legs, will leave us uh, with a nice tune. So thanks again for coming to listen to the Addiction Connection. We will see you again next week. Man is on his way, searching for the mountain tay in the hills of Connemara. Gather up the pots and the oats and can, the mash, the corn, the barley, and the bran. Run like the double from the excise man, keep the smoke from rising barney. Swing to the left, swing to the right, the excise man will dance all night. Drinking up the tay in the broad daylight in the hills of Connemara. Gather up the pots and the oats and can, the mash, the corn, the barley, and the bran. Run like the devil from the excise man, keep the smoke from rising barney. Down for the butcher, a quart for Tom, a bottle for old Father John To help the poor old man along in the hills of Connemara Gather up the pots and the oats and can, the mash, the corn, the barley and the bran Run like the 
double from the excise man, keep the smoke from rising Barney. Stand your ground and don't you fall, the excise men are at the wall. Jesus Christ, they're drinking it all in the hills of Connemara. Together up the pots and the oats and can, the mash, the corn, the barley and the bran. Run like the double from the excise man, keep the smoke from rising Barney.